During the pandemic, we have seen that many people became newly homeless. A homeless crisis, the likes we've never seen. The Blasio, nobody has done anything. Mental health challenges are not crimes. It seems that the system's broken. What does it take to get a more in-depth look into the week's top local news stories? The Debrief brings you inside for a one-on-one -on -one conversation with our reporters every week, right here, right now. The Debrief. Hey, everybody, and welcome to The Debrief. I'm Michael Gorgugo. I'm in this week for David Ushery. Well, for so many people, the past 16 months have felt like a constant assault on their mental health. Worries about becoming sick or dying from COVID, losing a job, being isolated from your friends, from your loved ones. And for those who are homeless, though, the mental health challenges can be even greater. Many have been forced from shelters into hotels and then moved out again. Others have found themselves out on the streets and even in the subways, where their presence has become an issue in the New York City mayoral race. Now, recently, the candidates offered their own take on how the challenge of homelessness and mental health should be met. Because the fact is, mentally ill, uh, homeless men are changing the character of our neighborhoods. We have more people sleeping on our streets, in our subways, in our shelters than we've had since the Depression. We're now spending $3.2 billion managing a failed system. We're spending $480,000 a year on that psychiatric facility we call Rikers. We're missing how we end street homelessness. Mental illness and mental health challenges are not crimes. We have had a shelter-first program rather than a housing-first program. My plan is to go from homelessness to homeownership. We are gonna get people out of shelters and into homes. We can retrofit our hotels in the outer borough, turn them into kitchenette, a new version of SRO. It's not right for them, it's not right for our city. There will be no recovery until we resolve this. We have the ability to do outreach in the right way, but we simply have to use the right people. Building that trust between street homelessness and everyday New Yorkers, we can turn this problem around. The numbers in New York City alone staggering. The city's Department of Homeless Services reported 47,600 men, women, and children being sheltered in city facilities as of June 17th. And numerous studies show that at least a quarter of those who are homeless are also dealing with mental health issues. The question is, what can be done about it? Let's bring in Jacqueline Simone, a senior policy analyst at Coalition for the Homeless. Jacqueline, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I wanted to bring you the viewpoint that many New Yorkers, our fellow New Yorkers say, they say, oh, we see more homeless on the street. This is a problem. We want the, the cities going back to the way it was in the 70s and 80s. We should just get them all back in the shelters. What, when you hear that, what is your reaction? So it is true that we have record homelessness in New York City, and that also predated the pandemic. Um, so prior to the pandemic in, uh, you know, winter of 2020, mm -hmm. we already had near record numbers of people in the shelter system, as well as record numbers of people on the streets. So that perception that homelessness is bad right now and that it is a crisis is accurate. And then during the pandemic, we have seen that many people became newly homeless because they lost their jobs. They were pushed out of informal living situations, such as if they were sharing a room but might not have been on the lease and didn't know their rights. Um, people fell through the cracks of the social safety net. And some people also who had been in the shelter system left shelters because they did not feel safe there, given the threat of the virus, and went to the streets. 
So at the same time that there were these economic pressures, there was also a very real risk of contracting COVID-19 in the shelters, and that caused some people to leave the shelter system. So there are a variety of factors that have exacerbated this pre-existing crisis during the pandemic. Let's talk about the mental health strain. We've talked about the mental health strain on people who lost their jobs, but people still have apartments or homes to live in. What is it like? What has it been like for those in the shelter system, those who are homeless on the street? What's the mental health strain that they're dealing with? Yeah, the past year and a half has been incredibly challenging for, for everyone, right? It's been a time of great uncertainty and stress. And for people who don't even have that basic stability of their own home, where they feel that they can be protected from the virus, the challenges have been nearly insurmountable. So many people have been disconnected from mental health supports during the pandemic as well particularly when much of the medical sector moved to telehealth. That has been helpful for some of our clients, but other people who don't have access to a cell phone or the internet reliably have really struggled to connect to some of their healthcare providers. And you know, even prior to the pandemic, because of reforms that were made at the state level with a shift to Medicaid managed care for uh, mental health care, We've seen that many people who are eligible for um, community-based mental health treatment are not actually receiving that treatment, even prior to the pandemic. So there were already barriers to accessing care, and I think the stresses of the pandemic both exacerbated mental health stressors and then also made it more challenging for people to connect to the supports that they needed. And then what happens, because for folks who are getting that mental health support and are able to function, what happens when that suddenly there's a disconnect and they can't get it anymore? It's very destabilizing. And, you know, I think there's been a lot of discussion about involuntary mental health care. But what we found is that even people who recognize that they need mental health support and who are actively seeking out mental health care are not always able to access it. So I think we need to really focus on removing barriers to even voluntary mental health care before we we only focus on this this notion of forcing people into treatment. Right? It's um, people will decompensate if they're not accessing uh, appropriate supports, and I think that it's really a failure of the social safety net and the medical infrastructure to not intervene earlier and to help people connect to that consistent care. Let's talk about uh, the, the situation as it existed, say, prior March 2020. You had a lot of people living in congregate facilities. I think the city was housing over 40,000 men, women, and children in these congregate living facilities. COVID hits, a lot of people had to be moved to hotels uh, where they were now not living in such a congregate facility. Was that an advantage or a disadvantage? Because you know, some of the people we've spoken to have said, no, I, I, I want to stay in a hotel. I'd rather do that then go back. And, and, and of course, underlying all this is mental health support. So can you look at it from that point of view? What was better? What was worse? Yeah. So an important distinction to make is that, you know, New York City has a right to shelter, which means that the city is legally obligated to provide a bed and a shelter for anyone who needs it. Now, the shelter system is set up slightly differently for families versus for single adults. So mm -hmm. families typically have a self-contained unit with, you know, usually a cooking facility, their own bathroom, 
whereas the single adult shelter system is congregate by nature. So there might be a dozen people sleeping in one room, sharing bathrooms, sharing dining facilities. So at the start of the pandemic, we knew immediately that single adults were at particular risk for contracting COVID-19 and potentially dying from the virus. So that's why uh, Coalition for the Homeless and other advocates pushed the city to transfer people into hotels where they could have more privacy and be better protected from the virus that causes COVID-19. So that was a critically important and life-saving move. Not every person was moved out of congregate facilities, unfortunately. Um, some people did remain in those congregate dorms that were reduced density, but I think that moving as many people as they did into hotels was really critical in stopping the spread of the virus. Um, we also know from speaking with both homeless New Yorkers themselves, as well as many of the shelter operators, that once people had more of a sense of privacy because of single occupancy hotel rooms, their mental health improved. And there were actually fewer incidents in shelters when they moved to hotels because people felt that they had that sense of security and privacy. You know, if you're if you're sharing a room with 12 strangers and there's also a pandemic and you're worried about your health and you don't have any private space, it's understandable that conflicts may arise. And this has been a problem even prior to the pandemic where people reported that the stress of the congregate shelter system was not meeting their needs. This is often a reason why people do go onto the street, even though we have that important right to shelter. So moving people into hotels both protected them physically from the virus, but it also did improve many um, people's mental health situation because they, they felt that they had that basic sense of dignity. So we're very concerned that the city is going to be now transferring people back to congregate shelters. But I have to tell you, I grew up on the east side of Manhattan. I grew up in a neighborhood with SRO hotels. And many people thought that that lifestyle as existed uh, in years past was not good for the mental health of, the, of, of those who were homeless or those living in those SRO hotels, single room occupancy hotels, because they weren't getting the mental health support. They were sort of living their own existence in these rooms, which were never designed for people to live in long-term. So in the long-term, when we look at these mental health issues, isn't it, isn't it better where they're in a setting where at least we know when those services can be administered? Yeah, so I think this is something that's often been lost in the discussion around the hotels as well, is the fact that the shelter staff moved with the clients into the hotels. So it's oh, not okay. accurate that people weren't getting services in the hotels. They were getting the same services. Obviously, just the nature of the pandemic would have made staffing shortages a reality, whether they're in hotels or congregate facilities. So people's services changed and they might have mm -hmm. adapted. Maybe they weren't meeting face to face with caseworkers, but it wasn't because of the fact that they moved to hotels. And I also think, you know, the the physical layout of a facility is an important consideration, but it's not the only consideration too, right? Like we're not saying move people into hotels and then just leave them there. Um, right. Or we also wouldn't necessarily say for every person, move them into housing and then just leave them there if it's someone who needs and would benefit from additional supports. I think we need to first give people that stability and that privacy and that dignity, and then also wrap the supports around them so that they are really encouraged to um, to really thrive and to meet whatever goals they might have. You know, research has shown that when people are focused on 
daily survival when they're sleeping on the streets or if they're experiencing homelessness in a stressful environment like a large congregate shelter during a pandemic, it makes it particularly challenging for them to uh, to really address those mental health issues. So first give people housing and then wrap the supports around them. And that's been shown to really break the trajectory of homelessness. Right. So what you're saying is that, uh, if I understand you correctly, what you're saying is that it mental health services are the key, but it has to be in lockstep with a safe and secure shelter. Right. And so the ideal is to move everyone into housing, right? Permanent housing, not even just shelters. There are right. some people who, who have no interest in going into a shelter who are on the street because they've gone to the shelters and they, it didn't meet their needs. Um, but they would gladly accept permanent housing, particularly with extra supports. But we just, as a city, have been rationing that permanent housing resource. So, you know, we talk about housing first, which is the notion that the first thing people need is the stability of a home and a door that locks and that basic dignity. And then you you help them address their, their mental health challenges. And that's been a proven model across the world, frankly. But instead, in New York City, people face constant bureaucratic hurdles and an inadequate supply of supportive housing. And then when we see people languishing on the streets or in shelters, um, people are aghast that uh, that people are are decompensating when in reality we know that it's because we as a society have not helped people access the resources that they need, which starts with housing. Um, but I think if if we actually helped move everyone into permanent housing and gave them that one-on-one -on -one support, that would be an incredible cha change in how we address mental illness in New York. But really, so to make this happen, what you have to do is say, we're looking at a universe of, say, 50,000 people in shelters and on the street in New York City. We have to look and find out who among that population needs mental health services. Then we have to tailor the mental health services to their individual needs. And people would say to you, well, uh, Jacqueline Simone, that's going to require an enormous expenditure of money, an enormous number of people doing an enormous amount of work. Is that really possible? I would say that it is possible and it's also necessary because the status quo is clearly not working. So we're spending a very large amount of money on uh on letting people languish in on the streets and in shelters and in prisons, frankly. So the cycle of homelessness and incarceration and hospitalization is incredibly costly and also inhumane. So studies have shown that giving people with serious mental illness access to permanent supportive housing actually saves about 10,000 per person per year in averted costs of shelter and jails and hospitalization. So I think we should help people uh, move into housing and treat housing as a human right because it's morally the right thing to do, but it's also the fiscally responsible thing to do. And particularly given that you know decades of racist housing policy has meant that people of color and specifically black and Latinx New Yorkers are disproportionately affected by homelessness, I think it's also a matter of racial justice, right? It's not okay that during a pandemic when so many of us have been told to stay at home in order to protect ourselves, that an entire group of our neighbors has been struggling to survive on the streets and in shelters. And homelessness was already a crisis before the pandemic, but I think the past year plus has really shown that housing is healthcare, housing is a human right, 
And if we want to create a better society going forward where people are better protected and are able to thrive, we really need to get serious about helping people connect to permanent affordable housing. All right. Well, Jacqueline, I want to thank you so much for talking with us today. We really appreciate it. Great. Thank you so much for having me. So now the question is, how do you do this? How do you provide mental health services to people who are homeless or living in shelters? We want to talk to someone who's been doing just that. Dr. Van Yu, he's the chief medical officer for the Center for Urban Community Services. Dr. Yu, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Okay, so here's the challenge, and this is something we've been discussing. Uh, to laymen, they see people on the street and they say there's a lot of mental health issues. They're uh, unsolvable, basically. A little intervention, a daily intervention is not going to work. As someone who does this, you are the largest, your organization is the largest provider of psychiatric services to people who are homeless or formerly helpless, homeless. How can you attack this problem and what success have you had? Yeah, so the issue is, is that the majority of single people who are homeless in this city and in most big American cities are living with either serious mental illness or substance use disorders. And that's a big factor in what led to their homelessness in the first place and then maintains their homelessness. But at the same time, many of those people have faced lots of obstacles to accessing the mental health care system, right? So that's why places like us exist. We bring healthcare and mental health care to people where they access other services. So for instance, in the shelters, when they're living outside with the outreach teams, in drop-in centers, and even in permanent housing sites. Um, and those kinds of efforts have been successful and replicated in many other places. But, but doctor, pe people would say, all right, so you're going out with a team and you're providing these services as other services are being provided for these clients. But that's not the same as someone who has a regular appointment with a therapist or a psychiatrist once a week and, and is on a course of treatment, is it? Or am I just totally wrong? No, it can be, right? So um, some of the people who we provide care to who are still living outside even or living in a shelter, uh, we do see them regularly, sometimes once a week, sometimes once a month. Um, there are, of course, some people who um, it's not as reliable or as regular. So for instance, if you're living in Tompkins Square Park, and even if you say to us, yeah, I'll see you next week, sometimes we can't find those people, right? And because we don't know where they are, they've moved or they're in the hospital or they're in jail or something like that. So it is more challenging to provide care to people who aren't in stable housing. But again, that's why we exist. It's that we're trying to do that. And we um, do all kinds of things to try to be successful at that. And we're, you know, we're sort of more or less successful depending on people's individual circumstances. I, I mean, it's just, it's a remarkable effort that you and your team make. Um, what is it like to, to address these problems, to meet these people? What have you learned about them that the average person who sees someone on the street and says, oh, there's a homeless person. Oh, they're, 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 they're having mental health issues and I feel badly for them, but just that's the way it goes. What do you learn about these people, meeting them, seeing them in person, learning about them? There, but for the grace of God, go I, right? That most people in the United States living with serious mental illness or substance use disorders are not homeless, right? Even though that is a factor that leads to homelessness, most people in these situations have um, run into a string of bad luck, uh, have poor support around them in their family or the communities. What I think we've all learned from working with our you know, patients is that 
that could be any of us, right? That that the bad luck can happen to anybody, right? And that and and by the way, the more you're able to work with people as people, because people know that people feel it from you, right? If you're just a number to them, they're not mm-hmm. going to work with you, right? And it's not going to work, right? We have a saying around here: the relationship is the treatment. Because out of a good relationship with a person you're working with, that's when the good stuff starts happening, right? It's, you know, the medicine helps when you can give people medicine, but that's only this much of what really helps people. It's developing a good working relationship, not only with the psychiatrist or the primary care provider, but the social workers too. And the other, you know, this other city agencies and other workers who are um, available to provide support and services. There's this big debate enforcement, mental health, as if they're two separate issues, but I'm I'm sure sometimes it's the same. When you and your team are out there and you're assessing things, how does this work? How does the initial contact work? Yeah, so typically for a person living outside, it's the outreach team, which is a social service team, makes the initial contacts, starts creating the relationship, right? Remember, if you don't have a good relationship, nothing's going to happen, right? And that could take days, weeks, months, depends on the person, right? And then as the team creates this relationship, then they start introducing the psychiatrist, the nurse, the primary care provider, other professionals who could provide other services. And it's through this slow relationship building, sometimes not so slow, sometimes it's pretty fast, but it's through Mm -hmm. this steady relationship building that you create a team around a person that can move them through the system, the very complicated system to navigate. Well, Dr. Yuona, thank you for taking the time to talk to us and giving us a greater understanding of the work you do and the challenges that every all of us face as a community in trying to help those who have mental health issues and are on the streets or in shelters. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It was great to be here. We've tried to show in this discussion the answer goes deeper than just getting people off the streets and back into a shelter, and that addressing mental health care can be a key to regaining a life of their own in a home of their own. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks to our production team, Ben Berkowitz, Darren White, and Melissa Mack. I'm Michael Gorgiulo. See you next time on The Debrief.